Hello and welcome back to the God Story podcast. Today, episode 29. I'm Brent Siddle and our guest is going to talk to us about thinking Christianly. He's Charles Cotherman, a pastor and planter of Oil City Vineyard Church in Oil City, Pennsylvania. He's the program director of the Project on Rural Ministry at Grove City College and has taught church history at Fuller Seminary and Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. And his new book from IVP, InterVarsity Press America, is called To Think Christianly, a history of a library, which of course is Francis Schaeffer territory in Switzerland, Regent College and the Christian Study Center Movement. And Charles joins me together with my co-host Ian Reid, Rido, who we could never forget from King's Grace Presbyterian Church in Palmerston. Uh, gentlemen, hello to you both. Hello, it's good to be with you. And it's good to uh, speak to you, Charles. And Rito, are you there too? I am here. Thank you for having us again. Oh, that's all right. No, I, I brought you in because you're, you're directly involved in this sort of thing. Charles, how do we best think Christianly then? Yeah, well, if this history that I write is any indication, and I, I happen to think it is, we do it with a community of folks and we do it in real life. You know, it's one of the things I love about almost everyone, if not everyone in this book, is that they're trying to think Christianly, not in a vacuum, not just in a classroom, but as they're living life, as they're in relationships, as they're looking at art and culture, as they're working in the garden. You know, it's really a holistic, all-encompassing way of living. So thinking Christianly involves all of life then, not just part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you know, of course it's intellectual, but it's also relational and spiritual and vocational it's, it's everything what does thinking christianly involve well so for people like francis schaefer thinking christianly meant that we really thought about the fullness of life underneath the fullness of the gospel right and it meant that it wasn't just a, an emotional feeling though there were there was room for that but it was rational it was intellectual it meant that it had room for you know an appreciation of beauty and truth and goodness in all the ways that god um kind of instilled those in creation yes what, what was francis schaeffer's vision for christian community and biblical study because it was really well in a sense for the certainly in the 20th century different to what had been before yeah at francis and and edith honestly and they're really a team it's hard to imagine Labrie without the two of them their personalities are so both of them just so creative and they work so well together um so for them what it was kind of an an evolution of sorts i mean they didn't start out to create Labrie. they started out to pastor churches in their small you know uh evangelical Presbyterian denomination. And they started out to care for the kids in the, in the local parish, as it were. And, and what came out of it was a kids ministry that was the fundamentalist version of kind of a, another evangelical kids ministry. And, and out of that, they kind of started to gain some notoriety in the United States for this. And they were select, selected as missionaries to Europe to actually work with children in post-World War Europe. So what we know of as Labrie was really like kind of they just happened across it. Um, maybe we would say it's the spirit kind of led them eventually to it, the spirit of God. And so it, it grew out of this just seeing what people needed. And it grew out of lots of conversations around the coffee table. And so it's no wonder that eventually Labrie became this home-based center for hospitality and asking questions because that's just what they were doing for years before they even had started Labrie. You say notoriety. So in what senses was Schaefer perhaps a bit marginalized 
by his denomination or by the established church in in the early days? Yeah, so, you know, Schaefer was on what we might think of in church world like an upward trajectory. Everything was up and to the right, you know, for Schaefer. He was going from smaller church to larger church. He was going from less influence to more. And it's what, you know, most pastors would think of as like the where you're headed, you want to go. Um, and then he took this assignment in Europe. And even that, you know, had some prestige. But when he was over there, he started to have a kind of a, I think it was compassion. I think it was a, a sense of what was needed in the moment. And, you know, when they started to, to shift gears away from these kind of ministry as it was known to this kind of entrepreneurial out of our house ministry and at the same time Schaefer was undergoing this kind of spiritual you know for a while in 51 it was a dark night of the soul he would pace you know the upstairs of the barn and Edith wasn't really sure he was going to come out of it he was doubting everything and you know as if you know anything about Schaefer as you know he did come out of it but he went back to the very basics of his faith and so he wasn't as willing to jump through some of the kind of hoops of American fundamentalism after that, you know? And so between this kind of like desire to focus on kind of the core movement and a faith that actually changes, not just our minds, but our hearts and the way we interact that demonstrates stuff in the mark of a Christian love for each other. And in this desire to actually answer the questions that were being asked by a generation marred by existential thought and and, and modernism and, and creeping postmodernism already, you know, they, they decided to just launch Labrie, which did not gain them any favor in their mission organization or in their denomination. What was, what was Labrie? We've talked a bit about it, but what was it? Where was it? And how did it work? Yeah, so the Schaefers launched it out of a chalet in um, kind of a little town, Waymo, Switzerland. It was in the Alps, and it was basically a large house on the side of a mountain where people from all over the world, you know, would, would come for tea or coffee and to have their questions answered. And it was free. There wasn't really a cost. And you, you might, you know, some people talk about showing up at the door and really not even having any clothes and they get to go kind of raid the Labrie extra closet clothing room and they get some extra coat or whatever they needed. Um, So it really was, a community where you could ask all kinds of theological questions and where they would just pop up through the day on walks or working in the garden around the dinner table. But you also, I mean, it was marked by deep prayer. It was marked by hospitality. You know, the Schaefer's famously talk about how all their wedding presents were basically ruined within a, a year or two of doing this because folks would just come and their sheets, you know, were burnt like holes from cigarettes in their sheets and all this stuff, you know, but they, they just, um, really had an open arm welcome. And that's what stood out in addition to just the brilliant conversations folks have there about a huge variety of topics. Yeah, the dinner table was important apparently because Edith Schaefer took immense pains with the small details of of life. And that was part of their theology of beauty really in their ministry, I understand. That's right. For Edith, you know, it was um, everyday art you know it was this idea that the small things from your handwriting which some of us can say oh no that counts uh from your handwriting to the way you set the table to fresh flowers to to the way you cut sandwiches the crust off sandwiches Edith was you know she was a stickler for detail on this stuff because she thought it mattered the presentation mattered learning to sit at a formal dinner mattered you know and and so 
if you think about the wide array of folks who came to Libri, I mean, you had everyone from like presidents, sons, to folks from the middle of nowhere, you know, in Central America, you know, in, in well, in Central the United States in the heartland, you know, in Kansas, they hadn't ever seen high culture, you know, or, or from Africa or from, you know, England, it was all over the world. But some of these folks had never seen anything like this. And so simply saying there could be beauty in everyday things um, was saying something theological that they had never heard before, you know. Yes. Why was the reform tradition and reform theology so central to uh, their movement and indeed the study movement generally? It is fascinating. You know, when I was putting this book together, um, I asked a leading American scholar on uh, Arminian theology, do you know of any of these that happen in Arminian communities? And he actually was like, he told me, no, I don't know of any of these. Now, I don't know if that's my hunch is that there are some, but but the vast majority do pop up in reformed communities. And I use reform pretty loosely, you know, but it, it really, this kind of, you know, Kuiperian sense of like, Jesus looks at all creation and says mine, you know, the idea that everything matters and that everything's under Christ. That gives a lot of freedom for actually appreciating culture and not just, you know, putting up uh, walls against it or, you know, not having simple dualisms between what's in and what's out, you know. And I guess the reformers uh, were deeply committed to taking theology to the people, which really is what the study movement's about. That's right. And one of the people that that highlights this is is someone that was influenced a little bit later by Schaefer, and that's R.C. Sproul. So R.C. Sproul had this enormous ministry, uh, passed away just a few couple years ago, had an enormous ministry geared to lay people. And when he's starting a study center in very near where I live in Pennsylvania, rural Western Pennsylvania, uh, in 19, the early 1970s, one of the first people he meets with is Francis Schaefer, right? And then as he starts um, kind of telling people about the study center, he, he forms this publication called Table Talk based off Luther, Luther. And he lays out in one of those issues just exactly that, how the reformers cared about the average person. That's why we have all these Bible translations. That's why we have um, so much catechism coming from this and things like that. And so Sproul especially was keen to that idea that part of the Reformation was get these ideas out to the average person. We better go back and ask the question, what is a study center? Yeah, so in the book, I, I define it with, I'm going to actually quote from it just to get the definition right, but I, I call it a local Christian community dedicated to spiritual, intellectual, and relational flourishing via the cultivation of deep spirituality, intellectual and artistic engagement, and hospitable presence. And really, all of those things are important because you know, you, you can't have a study center if it's just an online teaching seminar. You know, you have to have a, a center, a place, a, a physical embodied community, because it's not just the ideas, though the ideas matter. You know, when you find a study center without a library, you start to wonder, do we have a glorified, you know, rec hall? Like the, the, the ideas really matter. It's not just a nice meeting space. But at the same time, it usually is a nice meeting space, you know. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, Schaefer's talks were famous. He would sit around the fire. He'd sit on his barrel seat and just take questions Saturday night. So 
for instance, when there's a study center that pops up in Charlottesville and when they do a renovation in the late 90s, the study center director had spent time at Flippery in the 70s as a student. And he said, we're going to put fireplaces in every room we possibly can because we want to create that kind of around the mantle feel that he's had seen at Labrie. Yeah, what was the connection between the study centers and the universities? Because this was central to the planning of the study center movement, wasn't it? Yeah, so the interesting thing about this movement is, as I trace the history, and I, I'm pretty convinced this is, this is the way it worked out, you know, you had a couple different streams that kind of came together to form what we might now call, at least in North America, and really it's starting to expand around the world, a, a university-based study center movement. Because Drew Trotter, who headed up the Consortium of Christian Study Centers, which is a, an organization that loosely holds together about 30-odd university-based study centers in the U.S. He, he talks about four different kinds of uh, kind of a taxonomy. There's a university-based study center. There's a destination-based study center, which would be what Libri was. You know, it's not, it's not affiliated with anything. It's not, you know, super closely uh, proximate to anything as far as the university is concerned. It's just a destination you go there, specifically to go there. There's a church-based study center, and then there's a city-based study center. So in the U.S., we would think of maybe the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C. as being a city-based study center. But what I focus on specifically is how did we get to this university-based study center movement? You know, and I mean... <laughs> Really, there are, there are kind of two streams that come together to form it as it stands today. And so the one is Schaefer, which we talked a good bit about, which was this kind of, you know, hospitable community, spiritual community, intellectual community, aspirational community. You went to Labrie and you kind of wanted to recreate it. You wanted to take this back home wherever you were. And there were all these letters that came to Schaefer from folks that said, can I do a Labrie in Mississippi? Can I do it here? And Schaefer usually said no. He wasn't trying to, like, you know, mass market his idea necessarily. Um, but folks wanted to, they wanted to recreate that community, that intellectual engagement. So you had that stream and that's like, you know, RC Sproul and the Ligonier Valley Study Center was, was really in that stream as a destination study center. There's nothing close to Stallstown, Pennsylvania. It is in the Appalachian mountains. It's a destination. You go there to get there. But the other stream comes out of, of all places, Vancouver, British Columbia, and a guy, an Oxford PhD uh, geographer named James Houston, um, who's well nigh 100 years old now, and and at last I talked to him is you know was uh, as with it as ever. But Houston, who actually was an acquaintance of C.S. Lewis in Oxford before he comes over, which adds to his appeal down the road as Lewis becomes uh, you know kind of this celebrated figure within evangelicalism. Houston comes to this venture. It's a Plymouth Brethren venture in Vancouver. And they, you know, it's a lay driven movement. They don't have ordained pastors, but they want, they realize all our, our young people are getting more and more education. And so Houston comes there and he works with them and the Vancouver committee was already well underway. And so they bring Houston in. So it's like a combination of Houston's personality and a lot of great scholars who are already doing great work. People like Carl Armadang, Armadang and Ward Gasp. So together, this group, forms a little school in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, called Regent College. And it, because of some of the influence of people like Houston, it brings an Oxford model where you can be affiliated with a university. And that's their goal from the beginning, to be affiliated with the University of British Columbia and to actually engage the modern university. 
Schaefer wasn't necessarily, he didn't really care about that. He was an outsider to the university world. Houston was an insider trying to engage it. You know, and one of the lines I love from Houston is he tells in this early article, don't neglect or don't uh, leave the university for the church. He wants people in the university, sees it as a shaper of culture. And so Regent, which is a whole other story, we can talk about more later if you want, but Regent and Labrie work together to shape this movement based around hospitality, based around ideas, based around spirituality. It's very aspirational. When you go to either of these places in the early, late 60s, early 70s, you want more. Um, you want to take it home. And so out of these two streams converging, we get this movement based around place, based around hospitality, based around intellect that sets up shop near uh, major universities in the United States. Well, Rita, I'm going to bring you here in with the next question too, please. Why is it important for Christians to engage with universities and university students, Charles and Rito? Rito, you actually you engage with students, and Charles, you probably do too. You go first, Charles. Oh, okay. Well, that's right. Save, we're going to save the best for last on this question. So, Rita, <laughs> I'll just I'll just agree. Yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, Houston was right. They saw it coming in the United States, at least. Following World War II, we had this baby boom, and a generation of students kind of came of age in the 60s and early 70s from that baby boom, and it was the largest number of students in university. Uh, ever. And um, there were things like the GI Bill over here that paid for schooling for, you know, veterans. And so government policies were funding all this uh, Cold War era stuff. And so long story short, there were a lot of students in the university. And Houston saw this is going to be a trend. There's only going to be more and more influence at universities going forward, which is the case today, right? If you want to think about how culture gets shaped, if you want to go upstream, you go to university classrooms and you think about what's being taught, what's being caught, maybe more than taught on campuses. And this is a, a real culture shaping uh, institution, right, across the board in whatever country you're in. But it's also a moment in students' lives where they're really open to, you know, making, considering, like, giving their lives to something, right? It could be a philosophy. It could be the gospel. And so it's, a, it's an important moment in students' lives, too, to engage them. Rito, your thoughts. Why is it important to, if, to engage with universities and students? Well, I'll just agree with Charles, but <laughs> everything <laughs> that you said there. But I think, I think if you look at the Pacific as a microcosm kind of of that, uh, the Pacific Islands, where you look at the universities, that most of the leaders in the Pacific are going to pass through the universities, particularly um, the University of the South Pacific. And so if you can catch those students then, uh, then you you have the potential, as you said, Charles, to kind of shape them or set them on a trajectory that's going to shape their countries and, and shape ultimately kind of their cultures uh, and everything that's going around society. And that's only a microcosm of kind of what's going on. And I think, you know, we kind of see that all around the world. I think that's why the, ha the success of student organisations ha has been that they release people into Christian ministry. If you have a look at most people that are in Christian ministry who are pastors, they've been through some form of student ministry and they've been shaped by that. They've caught something there uh, and it has a long lasting effect. It's not only, and it's not only those people who have ended up in ministry, it's mums and dads who have gone to work and who are shaping their kids. And just the, I think the, the wide reaching effect is so important. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this, is, this isn't just about student ministries. It's really about lay theological study, Charles. Mm-hmm. This, is, this was a central, the central key underpinning theme behind the student the center, student-centered movement, wasn't it? That it was theology for the people. That's right. That's exactly right. Because if you think about it, they weren't setting up these um, study centers at seminaries. They weren't setting them up necessarily at Christian liberal arts colleges, because those, in some sense, those are study centers in and of themselves already, right? Trying to combine good thinking about all of life with gospel. But here we are at major secular universities where students are studying everything from engineering to art history, you know, to potentially uh, theology, um, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why UVA, the UVA Study Center came into existence because their religious studies department was one of the most influential in the United States. And tons of students were taking those courses and almost every professor was fairly anti-Orthodox Christianity. And so they felt like these students needed somewhere to process what they were learning. You know, So it was for theological studies, but it was also for that engineer that wanted to think Christianly about being an engineer what how do i be an engineer unto the lord how do i glorify god in my thinking as an engineer but also in what i do and, and the decisions i make and also in the, all the other spheres of my life my family you know my, how i spend my free time all of that and so universities were this great space where you know you had people working on all these different things and if you really believe that jesus actually is over all creation all these spheres of society actually matter and actually could be influenced by the gospel then it was just a great kind of melting pot of all this these ideas and potentials and ways to see faith worked out in life so we should really all think christianly about our vocations no matter what we do that's exactly right. That's exactly we, right. we mentioned Regent College uh, before in the interview, uh, Charles. How did Regent give academic heft, if I can put it like that, to the Christian studies movement? And why did it want to give academic heft? Yeah, it's a great question. For one, you know, you had Schaefer, who was inspiring a lot of young people, especially evangelicals or people that became evangelicals. You know, a lot of people converted to Christianity at Libri. It was inspiring people to dig deeper theologically. But Schaefer, you know, he had a few honorary doctorates and, and was an amazingly sharp mind, but he wasn't an intellectual per se. And in fact, you might say that he was in, in some ways a little bit intimidated by intellectuals. You know, when George Marsden and Richard Mao want to take a group of Calvin College students to Labrie, uh, Schaefer tells them point blank, the students are welcome, you're not. You know, so it was like, we don't want any, we don't want any other competing like authority figures here. You know, and that was probably, if you want to say, there were some things that, that Labrie uh, kind of didn't see in it when it was that close up, it was maybe that, you know, it's isolation in some ways, which is ironic, right? Because it, in some ways the whole world was coming there. But region's different because it does function on kind of the model of a, of a college where we're plugging into professional organizations, even if Houston was kind of anti-professionalism. That's why they kind of argued about an MDiv or not for years. Houston didn't really want one because he didn't want professional clergy. He was a Plymouth brethren at heart, you know, a lay teacher is what he wanted. Professional people who could think Christianly about their profession, but really be people in it, not professionals. But, but honestly, these young scholars at Regent, people like Carl Armading and Ward Gast, they were in the Society of Biblical Literature, SBL. 
and and they were leading book reviews and they were engaging with the academy in a way that academics got and in a way that could launch folks that had maybe got a, the academic bug at Libri, didn't know what to do with it. Well, they find themselves at Regent many times. And when they were at Regent, they then were in this trajectory where, oh, you want to do a PhD? Well, why don't you go to Oxford? And then they sent so many people there, you know? So, so there was just a way in which Regent was willing to kind of be in the conversation, the academic conversation and play by the academic rules, even as they were kind of bending them in, in a countercultural way. But still you could, it was a, uh, enough in the conversation that it became a launching pad for a number of legitimate PhDs and scholars and things like that. Where is the Christian Study Center movement headed now, do you think? I think it's on a growth trajectory, and I can speak specifically to the American context, though judging by some of the, by podcasts like this and some other ones I've been in around the world, I think it it really is an international thing. And, And people are seeing like, you know, universities around the world are becoming more secular, I think is a fair assessment. And Christians are saying, how do we engage them in a meaningful way? And there is some real strength in being close, but not being beholden, right, to a university. So for instance, many study centers own their own property. It might be a block away. You know, the one at UVA that I'm most familiar with, because that's where I did my uh, doctoral work and, and know the study center fairly well, it's within a thousand feet of Thomas Jefferson's rotunda. You know, it's right there where all the students go. It's where all the shops are. It's just right in the midst of it all. But at the same time, they own their property outright. They are their own entity, you know? And there's, so that's one of the, the kind of things I think a lot of people are catching, especially as these anti-bias laws come down. There is a sense in which this is a way to do campus ministry and not have to look over your shoulder all the time. But so I think, you're only going to see them increase. Now, my hope is that it's not just this kind of what I would call like a push factor, like anti-bias loss, but also the pull factor of saying like, this is also a really great way to live out the gospel and create a space where you invite students, many of whom aren't even Christian, to come in for a meal, to experience relationship. There's counseling available, you know? So it's really, it's really, I think, on a growth trajectory, people are finding it. We ha- start to see some big time investors saying, I want to see this at this university and they'll, they'll fund the whole thing, you know. And so it's uh, many of the study centers have have done capital campaigns recently. Uh, the one at UVA just launched a nine million dollar capital campaign uh, to um, add another third onto their building. And I think they're halfway there, you know, so it's pretty it's pretty it's, it's really growing. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, Charles, if someone listening wants to start a Christian study center, where do they go? What are some of the online resources they can tap into? And how can they get to you as well? Well, they can email me. um, My my email um, is cecotterman at gmail.com. So they can email me. They can find me on our church's webpage. I'm happy to have a conversation with folks. I'm not the I, mean, I know I might be an expert on the history, but I'm not an expert on all the ins and outs of starting a study center uh, today, you know, so I'm, I could be a voice in the conversation. The other thing I would do, I would always go to those study centers that you think are just amazing. And almost every single one of them, I can almost say to a person, the director will sit down via Zoom or whatever with you, and the, the director will tell you, they'll have a half an hour conversation with you. So go to the study centers that you find to be extremely interesting and faithful and compelling and and honestly have a zoom call with the director find a time and sit down and hear their story 
Because that is what honestly happened in almost every one of the cases that I chart. It was someone out of a relationship, out of an experience. They said, I want to know more. And then with a group of people, they prayed into it. And that's a huge part of this. It's not just I have an idea. It's I have a community willing to prayerfully pursue this. It's all based out of relationship with God and with, with a Christian community. And honestly, with the university, it's not adversarial. It really isn't, though it's not bad to be as, you know, uh, harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. It's not bad to have your own property and, and have that freedom, but it's not adversarial. It's really coming alongside saying, we honestly think that at root, the pursuit of truth is God honoring it. And as much as you're pursuing truth, we want to come along with you. Mm. Yeah. Charles Cotherman, uh, his new book from uh, IVP into Varsity Press in America is called To Think Christianly, a history of La Brie Regent College and the Christian Study Center movement. I found it fascinating. It had lots of stuff in it I knew nothing about. And so I urge anybody listening to this podcast to rush out and buy a copy. And we have a link to the book. We can buy it on our website. Rito, final thoughts as we close. Oh, so good uh, to kind of hear that. And I think there is a, a, a growing movement now, kind of particularly post-COVID, that students, they've had so much stuff online, they want community again. And I think if churches and other communities are able to do that hospitality, combined with truth and combined with the gospel and flowing out from the gospel, I think we have so much to offer the young people around because they're still asking those same questions, aren't they? Those questions of what's my purpose, what's my meaning? And I think we have something to offer them. I think they're probably asking them even more now post-COVID or during COVID than they were before. If they were asking before, they're probably asking them even more now maybe. Anyway, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Charles Cotherman, uh, the pastor and planter of Oil City Vineyard Church in Oil City, Pennsylvania in the States, and my co-host, Rido, Ian Reid from Kings Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.